This is Football CFB, the home of unique football content. I never told you You scared off the vultures I never told you You scared off the ghosts living in my head That lay lonely in the dirt That to be joined on Football CFB by the current England under-20s manager, Paul Simpson. First of all, Paul, thanks for joining me. Pleasure. No, good to speak to you. The first question I've got is, well, for me anyway, it's not every day I get to speak to a World Cup winning manager. I mean, you <laughs> took charge of the England under-20s um, at the World Cup 2017. You, you, you win the World Cup. You've got some quality players in that team. Calvert-Lewin, Tamori, um, Ojo. Lewis Cook, so many names in that in that squad, and apologies to those I've not mentioned because the whole team, obviously, the collective won the tournament. But what was that tournament like, and what's it been like for you managing the under twenties? Because you've been incredibly successful. No, it was. Um, I mean, it was a fantastic experience to start with. Anyway, I was I was really fortunate that I was involved in the FA. I was working with the under sixteens. Um, there was a change around, went on in the FA because of um, the situation that happened with Sam Allardyce. Gareth stepped up to seniors, AD Boothroyd went from 20s to 21s and they were left with a bit of a void with this 20s group. So I got a phone call in about the maybe the January or start of February um, from uh, Matt Crocker at the FA to say, would I be interested in taking the under 20s to South Korea for the World Cup finals? And it was a no-brainer for me. It was a definite to take it on. Um, I looked at the squad. It was a really, really good squad of players. Um, but when I looked into the, the history of England under-20s at the World Cup finals, it was horrendous. I, I think it was something like 20 years since we'd won a game at the World Cup finals and 24 since we'd won successive games. So I knew it was going to be tough, but I just looked on it that... It was a great experience to go to South Korea, um, part of the world I'd never been to, and also to go and invo be involved in World Cup finals, which I've got to be honest, I thought my days of, of dreaming of World Cup finals had, had, had gone. So it was, um, it was a, a great experience for me. And, and also going into the group, I realised we had a really strong group of players if we were able to get them all out from the clubs at the time. You mentioned getting them out from the, the clubs. I know Stuart Pearce many years ago said sometimes that could be difficult, but in your experience, I mean, I mentioned Lewis Cook earlier. I mean, for you, it didn't seem to be much of a problem because, as I say, the team you took, you had high-profile players from across the spectrum. Mm, yeah, well, it was tough. Um, it was a difficult one. But um, what we did from from the minute that, that um, I took over from A.D. Boothroyd, I followed up all of the work that he'd done before in, in going out. So there was myself, there was Matt Crocker, Dan Ashworth, who was a technical director. We made a real, a real effort to go and try and build relationships with the clubs and get them to understand how important this was for, for not only for England, but also for the development of their own players. So we did have a bit of an issue, um, and I've got to say it was it was really nerve wracking right up until the last minute. You know, we we were meeting up on a Sunday night to travel on 
um, the Monday out to Japan for a pre-tournament training camp and um, we'd had all sorts of issues so you know you mentioned Lewis Cook who was the captain of the team and Cookie was playing in Bournemouth's first team and I had conversations with Eddie Howe about releasing him they couldn't release him straight away because they obviously playing in the Premier League was a huge experience and I'm trying to have a sort of a bit of an argument stroke discussion with Eddie Howe to say it's a great experience to come and play in a World Cup and he's saying yeah I agree but it's an even better experience to play in, play in the Premier League and I couldn't disagree with him because it was a great experience for Cookie to be playing but what we came to a, a compromise where Lewis was able to miss I think it was the last game of the season and he was able to fly out later and meet us in South Korea um, and I think he arrived the day before we had to submit the squad to uh, to FIFA for the tournament. So we had that issue. We had other players injured. We had um, Patrick Roberts, who was involved with Celtic in a Scottish Cup final. He chose to stay and play for Celtic. Uh, we had... Um, Izzy Brown was involved in playoff semi-finals, so he wasn't able to come. Um, but the big boost that I got was the Saturday night before we were meeting on the Sunday, I got a phone call from Steve Walsh at Everton to say that um, they'd, they'd had a poor result at Swansea, which meant that they couldn't go up any places and they weren't going to drop down. And, and he basically said that Ronald Koeman had made the decision that I could take the players from Everton. And this was... John Joe Kenny, Dominic Calvert-Lewin, Kieran Dowell, Callum Connolly, four big players in the squad. And I sort of tentatively said, well, when, when do you think I can have them? He said, well, when do you want them? I said, tomorrow. And he went, right, take them tomorrow, then you can have them. And it literally was that Saturday night before we were meeting up the next day that I was able to bring them in. Um, so it was a last minute job, but thankfully it worked out well for us and, and we got a really strong group of players together. And um, and we managed to to have a really successful tournament because of it. You mentioned the successful tournament. It starts. You're playing Argentina in the group stage. Really positive result. Um, you had obviously Guinea and South Korea. A draw and another win there. You get through top of the group. The one I want to talk to you about before we talk about the final is playing Italy. Were you? What was that like getting into that game? Because the Italians, regardless of whether it's under 16s or the senior team, are always regarded as is a team that can be dangerous to any opposition because of mm. the, the quality that they always have. Yeah, well, to be honest with you, going right through the tournament, all of the games that we played gave us challenge. I mean, I, even now when I, when I try and go back and analyse the Argentina game, I still find it hard to understand how we actually beat them 3-0 because at times they battered us. They were a really good side. So the confidence of the group had grown all along. But going into that Italy game, the way that we tried to do with the FA, we involved the players in all of the opposition analysis, all of our game planning. We asked them what, what they thought we should do as well. And one of the questions I asked the players before in, in our sort of planning for Italy, I said, what's the worst thing that in your minds, what's the worst thing that we can do? And they said, oh, we can't concede an early goal. We can't do that. And I'm like, well, why not? What, what's the problem if you do that? Oh, well, Italy are brilliant. They just defend and they get 10 behind the ball and it's really hard to break down. So we talked through what's going to happen if we go a goal down early on or at any point if we go down, what's the plan? And we all agreed, we just stick to whatever our plan is. If this is the way we decide to do, and it basically it was 
you know, let's be patient. Let's make sure we keep moving the ball side to side really quickly and wait for that gap to open up and we'll get chances. And we conceded a goal after about two minutes to go one nil down. And I thought, oh, bloody hell, here we go. This is, this is what we've planned for. Let's see if they can actually apply it. And um, credit to them, they did. And I mean, it took... I don't know the timing of the goal. I think it was about 60-odd, 70 minutes we, we scored an equaliser. But from that point on, the players just kept doing what they'd said they were going to do, what we planned to do. And thankfully, we, won, we, we ran out comfortable winners in the end and, and beat a really, really good Italian side. Preparing for a World Cup final at any level, I, I imagine as much as you're delighted to be there, the players are, and you're excited... There must be a sense of nerves as well because you know how much is riding on that game. How did you prepare the, the group for that? Because obviously, when I know people say, oh, when players are young, they don't have any fear, but get into a World Cup final, there's, there's bound to be nerves, even if it's only slightly. Yeah, there was fear. Um, there, there are nerves that go into it. And the thing that we tried to do, we, we tried to just go for little steps all the time. So at no point... It, leading up to the tournament or anything like that, did did I actually talk about winning? One one of the first times I got together with the players, we were on a, a, a tournament in France in the March, and I got a, a senior group of players together and said to them, "Come on in, not senior, like a like a leadership group type thing," and I said to them, "Come on in, tell me what you think we can achieve this summer." And they said, "We're going to win it. We'll win the World Cup." And I'm like, "Well." I really admire your your confidence and stuff, but what right have you got to think you're going to win it? As an England team, we haven't won a game for 20 years, so why do you think you're going to go and win seven to, to be successful? And they just said, because we know we can. So we sort of came up with an agreement then as, as to how we were going to go about it then. So and it was like, you know, you can't afford to take your foot off the pedal from any time between March and June, you know, first couple of weeks in June when the final was. You're going to have to be fully at it all the time, fully committed to playing for England um, as well as your club. And they all agreed that was what we were going to do. So when we got there, again, even going out there, I didn't talk about let's go and win it. My my challenge to them was, can you win a game in the World Cup? And, it, and in fact, I broke it down even more. I said, if you score a goal, that's a success on what the last teams have done because they haven't even scored a goal in World Cup finals. So we made a little step there. So then when we won the first game, I said, right, your challenge is, can you now win two on the trot? Because that hasn't been done for 24 years. Um, and we drew against Guinea in the second game. So even though we'd virtually guaranteed our place in the next stage, I just said to them, you haven't actually done what we said we wanted to do. We haven't won two consecutive games. So we then beat South Korea and then everything snowballed. And obviously, because it's knockout at that point, you have to win those games. So we, uh, we managed to, we achieved the goal of scoring a goal against Argentina. We beat Argentina to get a first win. But then it took South Korea in the last 16 game to actually get the two consecutive. And it was only before the final where we sort of played a few messages of, of ex-players who'd, who'd sent a video for us and, and Gareth Southgate had sent and, and Prince William sent a letter to us to wish us all the best from the royal family and stuff like this. So I read them out and it was the first time that I actually said to them, we may as well go and win it. Why, why don't we go and have a go to win it in the final? And that was the first time that we even broached the subject of winning, just to try and take the pressure off them a little bit, I think, really. 
in terms of the final itself, you go in, you're playing Venezuela, a, a team who obviously have got the sort of South American flair, if you will. Um, some really good players in that team as well. They obviously had um, Penarada, who was at Watford, who very, very highly rated um, up front, which she can cause any team really a problem or two. When you look at that team in that final, just how proud are you in terms of how you won it? Because although it was a game, 1-0, it was quite narrow. You mm. played your stuff on the occasion and, and, and it, was a, it was a victory that was pleasing on the eye. Yeah, it was, um, it was a really strange game. In fact, all the preparation up to it, because when you're going through the tournament and you're looking at the opposition and you're looking and seeing where the threat might be, and you know we, we, had, we had every scenario planned. We had a planning document that was like, it, it, it was just ridiculous. So we had every scenario. If we finished third in the group, we'd go here. If we were second here, first here, and all the different, the different steps that we could take. So we were looking and we were looking at France and thinking, wow, they're a strong side and they got knocked out. Then we're looking at Uruguay thinking, oh, wow, they are a really strong side, Uruguay. And Venezuela go and beat them. So we hadn't really looked much at Venezuela, if I'm going to be honest. But then as we, when we beat Italy and it got to the point, we had two analysts working with us, um, Al Scott and um, Tom Cooper. And they came to us with what Venezuela were we were like, oh wow, they're a good side. You know, they're they've beaten beaten some very good sides to get there. They'd had a real push to try and get success. Their senior manager um, went stepped down to take the team for the last year to to try and get them success and all this sort of stuff. And they were a country that was in absolute turmoil. Um, and that was our planning for it. When when we went into the game, we showed the players what what they this, these Venezuelans would be experiencing and said, look, they're going to be fighting for their lives. This is massive for them to do it. But I then also asked the question, you know, we're actually fighting to be World Cup winners here as well. So why should they fight more than us? We should have it in us as well. So we, we prepared that way. Um, it was a tough game. We went 1-0 up through a really good goal from, from Dom Calvert-Lewin. But then I've got to say, the second half, we got absolutely battered off them. They hit the bar and Freddie Woodman saved the penalty and we, we cleared the rebound. There was all sorts of things going on where we, we got to a point. I always had this thing where, um, you know, make sure that if we're in a good position, don't, don't look for the result at the end. Just carry on doing what you're doing. And unfortunately, in the final, it was the first time we did it but we started looking for the end result. Instead of carrying on doing what we were doing, we were just desperate to get through to the end. And I've got to say, there was a point in the game where I looked to me to the two, uh, well, the three coaches, a goalkeeper, Coach Rich Hartis and Aaron Danks and Andy Edwards. And I looked at them and I said, what's going on in the second half? And they just said, we don't know, Simo. We haven't got a clue what's going on. And it was like, we were just stuck as we'd never experienced anything like it we were under real pressure and it was a case of right let's just try and hold on to our tin hats and see if we can get through it and, and thankfully we did the players stuck to their task they defended for their lives Freddie made a brilliant save I mean all through the tournament we'd prepared for penalties we, we expected to have to have a penalty shootout because the the law of averages said going through that tournament, we were going to have to have a penalty shootout. So we prepared for it with all, but you think you're preparing the outfield players, but the biggest thing was 
our penalty preparation helped Freddie Woodman to be really good at penalties. And, you know, that was a, a big part of us actually winning the tournament was him saving that penalty against um, Penrada in, uh, in the final. Absolutely. And you get the World Cup success. And how proud we are, you not only to get the success, but you've got the player of the tournament in uh, Dominic Solanke. And you've also got the Golden Glove and, and Freddie Woodman, as you say there. I mean, it was a perfect tournament when you think of the, the, the collective getting the trophy, also the individuals in the squad being recognised as well. Yeah, I think um, one of the things that we always talked about, that I, I, I'd said to the players when we went out there, that, listen, I still, I still go back to the fact that at no point did I go to the World Cup finals thinking that we were going to win it. And that wasn't me being disrespectful. I just knew it was a challenge. But the, the thing that I said to the players that I wanted to do, I wanted to come back doing better than the previous team. So I wanted there to be some sort of improvement to show that we were moving forward. But I also said that I wanted the rest of the world to start having some respect for young English footballers because the truth was the reputation of young English footballers wasn't very good, not only as footballers, but also as personalities um, and as characters. And we made massive strides on that. So I'm really proud of winning the World Cup, but I'm also really proud of the impression that we made on, on all of the other countries, on FIFA, on South Korea, about how we went about things and the respect that all of the players showed for the South Korean culture, respect we showed for everybody else. You know, there was things that happened in that World Cup that that weren't particularly good, but our players just kept their heads, kept the composure, kept their discipline. Um, and I think they came away holding themselves in a really good light and 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 sort of um showing people that we are actually decent people over in the UK and we do know how to go about our business properly. And that, that was as, as big a proud thing for me as it was of winning the, winning the medal. When you're the manager of the 20s and you're successful, the big worry must be for you when you think these boys are doing really well, but I just hope they can break into the first team and go on and have really good careers. So how proud are you with the likes of Tamori, Calvert-Lewin, Cook, many others that they've now broken into first team football and they're playing regularly. Brilliant! It's it's what they need, you know. That's what that's what they all want, and it and it's still a challenge for us. You know, we still we still don't have a really high percentage of English qualified players playing in in the top leagues, but um, I think they've all done really well, and and I think when you look through all of the age groups that there's a lot of players who are actually playing first team football now and 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 that's got to be good for the national team um you know i mean i, I know you know if if i go if i compare it with scotland years ago years and years ago there was lots and lots of scottish players who were playing in the uh, english english main leagues and also the 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 um the Scottish Premier League and Scotland were a really strong side. So, you know, we've got to make sure that we get our players playing in, in senior football, um, whether it be Championship, whether it be Premier League. We've also now got a hell of a lot of players who are going over to Germany. I've got, in my 19s group this season, I've had um, a boy playing at Almeria. I've got a couple over at Stuttgart, um, Hamburg. That They're playing all over the world. And, and this has got to be great experience for them and, and got to be good for the national team further down the line as well. Absolutely, long term, it can only be a good thing. And 
I want to rewind back to your playing career. One of the things that interests me about you, Paul, is the fact that you're, manage, you're managing the 20s and I think you're one of the perfect people to manage that, that age group because you made your debut at 16, Manchester City, the great Billy McNeil obviously involved in the early part of your career as well. Just what was it like coming through at City and making your debut so young? Um, well, it was, it was a, a really, really good football club in those days. Nowhere near the level of the club it is now. You know, it's, the club has just taken off over the however many years since, um, well, firstly, since John Wardle from JD Sports got involved, but then since um, Sheikh Mansour's involved, it's a different level. But it was always regarded as a big club. You know, even when we were in the second division, we were still getting twenty and 25,000 crowds there. You know, I remember the game that we got promoted back to the, uh, back to the, the old first division. The crowd went down of about 50,000 and there is no way there was 50,000 in Main Road that day. There must have been closer to 60,000. They were so well supported. Um, but I was really fortunate. I mean, I, I joined the club in 1982 full time um, and me and Jamie Hoyland got putting digs together. Um, and that was the sort of the first time we really got to know each other, me and Jamie. We, we were living together in this house in, uh, in Burnage in Manchester. And really, it was a case of you have to grow up very, very quickly because we were put into digs. We were told to get on the number 50 bus and get off just outside of Rush Home and walk through the middle of Moss Side to get to Main Road on a, on a cold Monday morning. You think, wow, this is, a, this is a long way from what I've been used to in Carlisle. Um, but, and you have to grow up really quickly. And you go into the club and, and you get absolutely battered physically, mentally, emotionally. It was a really tough place. Football was a tough place to be involved in in those days. Um, but I, I, I just had a little a stroke of luck. So it was, that's how I made my debut so early. We, we were in a position where the manager at the time, John Bond, was under a bit of pressure. We weren't winning games. I made my debut for the reserves on a Tuesday night and played really well. I think I might have scored. And the manager decided to throw a young player in just to try and ease a bit of pressure on himself. And, and I was the one who got thrown into it. So I literally, Friday morning, you know, it used to be the days you used to go into the first team change room and the team sheets would be put up on the board and you'd have the first team, the A team for the, for the junior game. And I've looked at the A-team in the Lancashire League game and I wasn't on it thinking, wow, I've actually been dropped. And one of the lads said, Simo, you have a look on there. And I'm on the first team team sheet and that's the first I heard of it. We didn't do any team shape or anything. So you know you're in the squad and you turn up and on the, on the Saturday, I did the training and everything, turned up on the Saturday for the game and John Bond named the team and I was playing. And, and that, was, that was me finding out at about, I think that would be about quarter to two for a three o'clock kickoff. So although I was nervous to be in the squad, I didn't have time to be nervous that I was actually playing. It was just a case of, wow, I don't actually know what's going on here. And you just get on with it. And I'm in a change room with, you know, players like Joe Corrigan, Asa Hart, David Cross, um, uh, Dennis Stewart, Kevin Reeves, some unbelievable first-team players who are in this change room. And I'm there, 16-year-old, and thinking, wow, what's happening here? So, but you just get on with it. So it was, it was a great experience. Um, played the full game against Coventry. I then, uh, I then got put onto the bench. We played Everton away. 
Um, I was on the bench for that Sunderland at home. We had a cup game at Wigan in between, and then the next game was going to be Man United away in the in the Manchester derby. And as quickly as and as straightforward as I found out I was in the squad by somebody telling me my name was on the sheet, I found out I wasn't in the Manchester derby game because my name wasn't on the first team sheet um, for that game. So I, I got left out. Um, and then it was a case of knuckling down and getting back to basics again and trying to find my way. Um, and I've got to be honest, I didn't do that particularly well. It was tough for me for that that probably the next 12 months, really. A tough 12 months. And one of the things that you talked about with the 20s is the fact that there's players playing all over the world. You go on loan to Finn Harps over in Ireland. What was that experience like for you? And did that help you develop not only as a player, but as a person as well? Oh, without a doubt. Um, I've got to say, it was, it was a real shock to me because I was at City. Uh, that season, we got relegated. The, the, my, my season, I made my debut, went down with the, uh, the, the last, last game of the season, losing against Luton, where David Pleat did his infamous skipping across main road turf. Um, so we went down and Billy McNeil took over. And he brought a lot of new players in, predominantly Scottish players. Um, Jim Tolmy came in, Derek Parlane. Um, he, and he basically came to me and said, look, we've, I've got a lot of players who I want to have a look at for the first part of the season. Um, I'd like you to go on loan to Finn Harps. So it was supposed to be me and Jamie going over to Finn Harps, but Jamie got an illness. So John Beresford came with me instead. Um, and it was a case of we had... We had some really good pre-season fixtures. I know we played City, we played against Celtic, um, and there was one more as well, and I can't, I can't think off the top of my head now who it was, but really good fixtures. And the plan was to stay out there for three months and just get some experience and then go back, and hopefully Billy was in a position then to, to know whether or not he wanted me. But as a young player, you still think, Ah, this is the end of my City career, really, especially because I'd not done well for the remainder of that previous season. Um, so after the first couple of weeks, Bez decided that he didn't want to stay, so he came back to, to Manchester and, and I decided to stay out there. And it was difficult. I mean, the, the, the League of Ireland was a tough league. Um, it was really physical, totally different to being in at Man City. And also it made it difficult in that... Um, there was only a couple of us were full time, so there was me, myself, um, and a lad called Ian Arkwright, who um, we we were in in this uh, bungalow together, living out there, um, and um, basically my day consisted of doing a little bit of training, playing eighteen holes of golf, and training maybe twice twice a week on a night with the rest of the players. Most weeks, actually, only once turn up on a Sunday and play for, for Finn Harps. Um, and I think the first one of the first games we played on a Sunday afternoon, I turn up for pre-match meal and at City it was beans on toast or you know maybe an omelette and spaghetti or whatever it might be. And there was a full Sunday roast for pre-match meal and I thought, oh wow, this is, this is a little bit different. I'm not used to this. So it was sort of a bit of an eye-opener. But a fantastic experience. The team was run by a guy called Patsy McGowan, and he and he really did look after us. Real good bunch of lads. But I got to a point after two months where I just thought to myself, I'm very easily going to get forgotten if I don't go home. Um, 
I was a young lad living out there. I felt as though my Man City career was going away from me and even my career in English football if I didn't get my finger out and get home. So I was set to earn a really, really good bonus if I'd stayed for the three months. But I just thought, I can't stay here just for money. I'm going to have to get home, get back to Manchester. So I rung Billy up and said, look, listen, Gaffer, I'm, I'm really worried here. I'm... I'm not training full time. I feel as if I'm missing out on something in England and at City. I really want to come back. And he just said, not a problem. Get the next plane home tomorrow. Come back. Um, so I came back and I got straight in the squad against Sheffield United. Um, I came on as a sub. It was a throw into Sheffield. Both got thrown over my head and I turned and not purposely, but went over the top on their wide player and got a yellow card. From the free kick, the ball got cleared and I went and I ended up with a late tackle on somebody else and nearly got red carded within about a minute of me returning back to England. Um, didn't do anything in the game. That was the only game I played um, in that little run. I then got left out again. But then fortunately, again, little stroke. This is how football can happen, how it can be really strange. We, we were getting to the end of the season. My contract was up. And I, again, I'd done okay, but not brilliant. And it looked like I was going to get a free transfer to leave City. Um, and Bob Stokoe, who was the Carlisle manager, came to watch me on a Tuesday night in a reserve game. And the first half, I was really poor. Didn't play well at all in the first half. And Bob Stokoe left at half-time. He went to go and watch another game on his way back up to Carlisle. Second half, I did really well. Scored a couple of goals. And then between that Tuesday night and the, the Saturday when our first team game was on, um, Clive Wilson and Gordon Smith, two left-sided players, both got illnesses and weren't available. And literally, I was the only other left-sided player in the in the reserves and first team, and I got in against Coventry. Uh, sorry, against Cardiff City, and that was then. There was nine games to go for us to get promotion, and I stayed in for those nine games. Scored against Cardiff, scored five other goals, um, and helped us to get promotion. And my City career went from possibly or even probably getting a free transfer to go to Carlisle changing to me getting into City's team and, and, and everything was totally different from that point on. Everything's different from that point. You break into the City team, you're a regular at Main Road under them, which must have been incredible. And you also break into the England under-21 setup. Just what was that experience like for you with England and obviously with City playing regularly and, and being a mainstay in the team? Yeah, it, it was a really strange thing because obviously to play for your country is is massive. You know, I'd, I'd played I played a few times for under eighteens in a tournament in Yugoslavia and really enjoyed that um, and mixing with some you know some really good players and then breaking into the under twenty one side was was huge and a, a real honour. But I've got to say, in those days, it was nothing like it is now. There wasn't the same. There wasn't the same esteem attached to playing for England as there is for now. You know, I, I always remember my last game for England under 21s. Um, we, we played at Peterborough and um, we won 1 0. I, I, I crossed the ball in for Terry Connor to score. And, and nowadays we have, we have a driver goes and picks the players up and takes them to and from wherever we're playing and everything. There's so much media hype that goes with it. I drove myself there in my Fiesta, got to Peterborough, left my car at the hotel, drove home again. 
the days of no mobile phones. I remember stopping, um, stopping on the way back to ring ring my girlfriend at the time, now my wife, um, to let her know that I was on my way home. Um, my mum and dad only found out about the result the next day. They didn't come down to Peterborough to watch because my dad was working. And you just think how it all works out now is so different to what it was in those days. But um, it was a huge honour to be involved in that. But I also knew that it was massive to be involved in Man City's first team. And, and really, that, that was the main focus. But it's one of the things that I actually say to the players now. I, I talk to them about my days and I say, don't underestimate how important it is and don't take for granted what you've actually achieved here because it's only when you become an old git like me that you look back and think, wow, how, how lucky was I to be part of that? But at the time... I didn't appreciate how good it was and, and how important it actually was. You had spell, the spell at Man City, successful. We mentioned the earlier loan spell. After Man City, you have spells with Oxford and Derby and those spells as well were, <clears throat> if you compare it to modern football now, quite long spells, playing well over 100 games for both clubs. Just, mm. just what was that like? Yeah, it was... Um... I felt as it was a, this is no disrespect to Oxford anyway, but but when I got told by Jimmy Frizzell, who was, Mel Machin was the manager at the time and Jimmy was his assistant. And when Jimmy called me to say that uh, we'd accepted an offer from Oxford United, I felt as though it was a real kick in the teeth um, because I, I felt as though I still had something to offer City. And I had directors ringing me saying, don't leave, we want you to stay, you, you'll, you'll outstay the manager. But... I couldn't see it. I just couldn't see it happening because, you know, the, the team were getting good results. Um, but I just wasn't Mel Machin's type of player. He just didn't fancy me to play that left side as he wanted. So I made a decision to go to Oxford, who, you know, Oxford were in the what is now the championship at the time. They'd just got relegated out of the top league. They'd been to a Milk Cup final. So they, it was a decent football club. Um and Brian Horton, the manager, had shown a lot of faith to, to put the money in for me. Um, and I went there and we I absolutely loved it at the club. It was a fantastic place to be. Really nice city to live. Um, two of our children were born there. Um, but it was a big shock because me and Jackie got married in the June of 1988. And this was probably in, a, I don't know what month I left, but it was about September, October time. We'd just... Got, we'd only been married a couple of months. We'd found out that um, Jackie was pregnant with our first. So to then have to leave our, what was Jackie's hometown and move down to Oxford was a big shock to the system. Um, and it took a little bit of adjusting to. But the club was a really good club. We were, we were a decent side as well. We had some good players in the side, a real good mix. Brian Horton was, a, was, was excellent in the way he managed the team and the club. And I, I just enjoyed it. He got me playing football how I wanted to do. I was creating chances. I was scoring goals. There was there was lots of talk of me getting a move away to some of the big London clubs. Um, there was always talk of Derby County. But then it was only because of um, the death or disappearance, whatever, of Robert Maxwell that the the decision was made we were in a position because we had um, Robert Maxwell was the owner at Derby County and Kevin Maxwell his son was the chairman at Oxford and when when the uh, Robert died we were basically told that 
the everything had come out about the mirror uh, the daily mirror pension issue gone on where all this money had gone missing and no money was going to go into oxford and one player had to be sold within 10 days otherwise we weren't going to get paid so as the days ticked on everybody started to panic thinking oh god what's going to happen here you know are we going to get any wages and i think i got sold on about day six or seven to derby um for half a million um so it solved their money problem but it also gave me a chance to go to a club that was really really ambitious um arthur cox as manager with lionel pickering as the chairman throwing millions of pounds at it and um i went into this club i think i was about the second or third signing signed marco gabbiadini first then steve sutton and then i came in and then from there it was like Paul Kitson, Tommy Johnson, Craig Shaw, Darren Wassell, lots and lots of players all signed for big money. Um, and, and it was, you know, it was a good place to be. One of the managers you worked under, I've got to ask you about, Jim Smith, what a character. Yeah, it, absolute top, top fella, really was. Um, Really strange sort of guy, and, and and I always have to talk about when I talk about Jim, I have to talk about Steve McLaren in the same breath because we we when I joined Derby County, we were a group of young players who basically basically got plucked from different teams by Arthur Cox, and Arthur's view was you good players just go out and play, and you should be fine, and um, it didn't work because we were really a team of individuals, and it didn't work out. And and really some some really top players as well. You know, we had some really good players in our squad, but it didn't work. So then Jim Smith come in with Steve McLaren, and it was the first time that we really got organised as a group. And Jim brought in, he brought in a, some players. He brought Robbie Van der Laan in. He brought. Um, uh, Daryl Powell in as like a the, the nucleus of the side. As we progressed, he brought people like Igor Stimak, Alyosha Sanovic, uh, Chicho Bayana, Stefan Aranio, some really top, top players in as well. But Jim came in, and I've got to say, for the first month, he is he was probably the horriblest man I've ever come across. He was so strong and strict and just hammered players daily. He, he just constantly did it. And Steve did all of the training, all of the organisation, all of the tactical stuff. But after that first month, Jim then had set the tone of how he wanted to be. Everybody knew what the line was, where they could go. And from that moment, he was just a top, top fella. And that partnership was as good a part managerial partnership as, I, as I've probably experienced in my whole career. They were just so so well suited to each other. Jim loved to do the wheeling and dealing and he managed the club. Steve loved coaching and he was on the grass all the time taking the organisation, the tactical stuff, the technical stuff and it just worked and it was, you know, that that period that I was at the club, the, the first season when we got promotion um, and then that first season in the Premier League were were two real high points of my career really. In terms of playing in the Premier League, what was it like at that time? Because you think of the quality in that division over the years, and when you were playing in there in the 90s, you had the likes of Cantona, you had Cole on fire, you had Ian Wright at his pomp, Matt Letissi, all these type players. Right. I mean, just what was it like playing in that league? No, it was it was huge. And, and it was just starting to take off the Premier League as well. Um, you know, with the sort of mid to late, late 90s, it was just starting to really 
get bigger and bigger. Um, and it was a tough league and, and it was quite a frustrating one for me because um, when we got up, I'd been involved in a lot of games to get us up, I think 20 odd games and I'd scored into double figures. I don't know the exact numbers, but I'd scored a few goals to get us up and, you know, really thought I'd earned the chance to play in the Premier League. But Jim Smith had decided that he didn't think I was good enough to start in the Premier League. Um, and in all fairness, he told me as well, he said to me, you know, you will be involved every game, but you'll be on the bench because I don't think you I don't think you can start for us. And he said, if you don't like that, I respect the fact that you might want to leave. And I said, no, no, I'll, I'll prove you wrong. I'll show you that I deserve to start. Now, over that 38-game season, I never started a single game. I came on and sub in quite a few. In fact, the first game against Leeds, I think it was, I came off the bench and scored um, to get a draw in that game. Scored a few goals over the season. Um, so it was frustrating in that I was never able to start. But... I had to respect that was Jim's decision. I couldn't, I couldn't do anything about it. And, and as much as I tried to, I tried to do everything properly. I worked hard. I got myself fit. I could never get myself into the starting eleven. And in fact, I think the only game that I did start in the Premier League was the following, the second season, where we had Dean Sturridge, Gabbiadini, somebody else got injured. We, we basically had no strikers for the first game of the season away at Blackburn. And he played me and a centre-back called Matt Carbon. We were the central striking partnership to play Blackburn Rovers away first game. Um, it didn't work um, as you know most people could have predicted it wasn't going to work. And that was my only one and only start in the Premier League. So it was frustrating, but still uh, an incredible experience to be involved in in that type of game, you know, to go to, we went to Old Trafford and beat them with that famous Paolo one-chop one -chop goal. I was, I was involved in that game. The last game at the baseball ground against Arsenal, I, I came on in that game. So there was a loads and loads of highs and it was a, a real special, special part of my career. Special time in your career. Following Derby, you, you have spells at Wolves, Walsall, Blackpool before you then get into management. What was the what were the latter years of your playing career right before we come on to Rochdale and Carlisle? Mm. Um, it was really strange because at Wolves, I, I really enjoyed going to Wolves. It was a fantastic football club. The support is incredible for Wolves. They're really passionate about the club. Um, I went in, did okay in that first in that first season, um, and then the second season it didn't start particularly well for me. I got sent out on loan to Walsall. Mark McGee was the manager who took me there in the start of that next season. Mark McGee was there with Colin Lee as his assistant. Mark decided to send me out on loan. I went to Walsall, got some games in. And then Mark got the sack and Colin brought me back in. And I got involved a bit more towards the end of that season. Um, but I've got to say, I, 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 didn't, I didn't play my best football there. Um, I, can't, you know, I can't sit here and say I wasn't treated well because I was playing really well. That probably wasn't the case. My football was starting to go off a little bit. Um, I was starting to find the pace of the, Premier, of the Championship a bit too much for me. And I'd also started coaching as well. So I was still living in Derby, driving over to Wolverhampton every day. I was doing my coaching badges and I was working with Derby County's under nines academy team. And I was also doing a, a distance learning sports science degree. 
So I was snowed under with work. And my day used to be, I would drop the boys. My, my wife, Jack, is a school teacher. So she'd go off to work early. I'd drop the boys off at school early in the morning, set off over to Wolverhampton. I'd stop at a BP truck stop and get a mug of tea and do about an hour's sports science work, go into train, go back to the truck stop, do an hour's work, and then go and pick the boys up from school and sort of look after all their needs after school. So I was doing my training. Then I was coaching at night and coaching on a Sunday with Dives Academy. And I just got to a point with Wolves where I thought I need to pack in. And I'm not, my football isn't good enough to get in Wolves team. Um, And I'm just going to give it, just throw myself into coaching. So I signed an agreement to cancel my contract at Wolves on a Thursday and driving home, this was before the first game of the season, driving home, Steve McMahon rung me and said, what are you doing? I said, I'm on my way home. I've just cancelled my contract. Why? And he said, well, will you come and play for Blackpool? And I said, no, I've made a decision. I'm going to pack in. And he persuaded me over the the journey between Wolverhampton and Derby to just give it a go. He said, sign sign a short term. Come and sign a month. If you don't enjoy it, pack in. Just, just do that. But don't throw the chance away. So I agreed to it. Went to Blackpool. And I absolutely loved that first season at Blackpool. The fans took to me. I did well on the pitch for them and it sort of, I think it from going from a point thinking my legs have gone and I've finished, I was able to show that I still had a bit of life left in me and that season, I think I played about 55 games for for Blackpool that season and we got to, we got to a um, playoff final and won that and, you know, did well in the, um, I don't know what it was called at the time, the auto windscreens or full members trophy, whatever it was called. We, we, we got through to the, the, the later stage of that. So it was a really, really good season. And I loved every minute of it. And, and that gave me a new lease of life for football then. So um, I then went the next season. Um, I didn't do as well the next season. And again, I'm at that point where I'm starting to think, is it my legs are going? What, what exactly is it? Uh, an opportunity to came came to go to Rochdale for the last part of the season. Um, I, was in a, I was in a really tricky position because I was coming out of contract in the summer and Steve wanted me to sign a new deal, but he said it's going to have to be performance related. So I said, yeah, no problem at all. I said, if, you know, let's make it, if I play 30 games, I can earn the same money. If I don't play 30, then I don't deserve to earn the same money. Let's do that. Um, but the chairman decided that it needed to be something like if I played 50 games, I'd earn the same money. Well, I just said, no, nah, not going to do that. I'll wait till the summer and see what happens. And the next thing, Rochdale come in and I went and finished the season with Rochdale in the playoffs. And, and um, you know, again, really enjoyed it. Scored a few goals. We lost against uh, Rushton and Diamonds in the playoff semi-final, but really good experience to be involved and to be playing football again. Great experience to be playing football. You mentioned the fact you, you go to Rochdale, you um, get a kind of lease of life in the, in the latter stages there. You, you mentioned the fact that you'd studied the sports science, your coaching badges. When the opportunity arises for you to become a player manager of the club, what was your immediate reaction? Um, I wasn't ready for it. That was my immediate reaction. It was like, wow, um, I don't know if I don't know if this is for me. Um, the way that it, it, it happened as well, while I was still at Blackpool, the manager's job came up. Um, 
I think I'm right in saying it was Steve Parkin left to go to Barnsley and they were advertised for a new manager. So I spoke to Steve McMahon and said, look, I'm getting to a point where I'm coming to the end of my career and I need to start thinking about what's next. I said, I don't particularly want the Rochdale job, but would you, would you be fine if I apply for it so I can go through the process of writing a CV, applying for jobs? Hopefully I might get an interview because I've never done an interview in my life and just see whether I can get some experience from it. And he said, yeah, no problem at all. I said, but honestly, I don't want the job. So he let me do that. So I, I did the process of applying and CV going in and then I didn't even get an interview. So I, I didn't get that far. But then come the end of the season, the chairman, David Kilpatrick, came up to me on the, it was the player of the year do. We'd missed out on the playoffs um, and David came up to me and he said, um, are you still interested in the job here? And I was like, whoa, uh, what do you mean by that? He said, well, I remember you applied for it last time and nobody had ever even mentioned to me that I'd applied for it. It was just one of them things. And I said, well, no, John Hollins is the manager. He went, no, he's not. He said, uh, we're trying to agree a new contract. There's no way we're going to agree. It was so far apart would you be interested in, in the job again? And I said, well, you caught me off guard a little bit, but I'll definitely speak to you about it. So he arranged an interview. So I was going over to Hong Kong to play in the Hong Kong Sevens Masters Tournament on a Tuesday. So he said, well, let's interview you on the Sunday. We'll, we'll get you together with a few directors. Um, they interviewed me on the Sunday and then on the Tuesday morning when I was in the airport ready to fly to Hong Kong, he rung me to say, um, I want you to start thinking about how you're going to be the manager of this club. And I said, well, why are you telling me I've got it? And he went, I can't tell you that now, but be thinking about how you're going to be the manager of this club. So that it was sort of a bit of a panic setting then. It's so, wow, what do I do here? I'm going from being in a player, just thinking about playing. Um, I was coaching at Blackburn Rovers then at the time. I was taking their their under-8s group in at Blackburn Rovers in the academy. So I went from being under-8s Blackburn coach to first-team player manager at Rochdale. And it was a, it was a real eye-opener. I mean, I was, I was told by the board that we under... Because my big thing was, look, I've never done a course to be a manager. I have no experience of being a manager. I am going to need some real help in this. Um, and they just said, yeah, we'll give you all the help you need. You won't be left on your own. And unfortunately, that wasn't the case, really. I was thrown into the job. Um, and I had to get on with it. And, and you know, when, when, you, when you are thrown into a management job, unfortunately, you make mistakes while you're learning. And, and that, was, that was the big thing that happened for me that year. I made a lot of mistakes while I was learning the job. Um, and really, not, not so much about... Um, I don't think it was mistakes about the way that I handled the players. I don't think it was mistakes around the tactical or, or stuff. It was more around the budgeting and the signing of players. You know, when I took over, I was given a, a set figure of money that I was allowed to spend every week to bring players in. And I made a decision, and with hindsight, it was a wrong decision, that I would focus on the spine of the team and I would throw like 99% of this budget into the spine of the team and that was on three players and for different reasons those three players didn't work out for me over the year um, and, and it cost me that you know it, it cost cost me in terms of results 
and ultimately that's what um, that makes the decision that you have to leave. The obvious question I really want to ask you, Paul, is what are the challenges of being a player manager? Because it's something that you used to see in the game quite a lot. Kenny Dalglish, probably the prime mm. example. In Scotland recently, we've seen it a couple of times, but it's not lasted too long. Kenny Miller being the prime example up here. What was it like from your perspective? Because as I say, it's something we don't see an awful lot of anymore. Yeah, it was um, it was a bigger challenge than I thought it was going to be, um, because it totally takes over your life. If, if you think as a player, so when I joined Rochdale, I, I lived in, in Brockhall, uh, on Brockhall Village near Blackburn's Academy. So I used to set off in the morning, go over, be thinking about training and playing, do my training, jump in the car, go home again. And that's my day done. I don't have to think about anything else. Then you go to a, being a manager or a player manager. So firstly, I had to be in, much earlier in the morning. So that means an earlier rise, get, get into the club, get everything organised for the day. Um, you're, that, you're now thinking about all the players, you're now thinking about the group of staff you've got working with, you're thinking about your academy setup or centre of excellence setup as it was at the time. You know, at Rochdale, the challenge was where we're going to train. Are the players all going to make it in in time because they don't all live within 20 minutes of the club? There was loads and loads of challenges. Then after training, you're then planning the next day, you're looking at the opposition, you're going out scouting players. It, it totally takes over your life. And um, it it was something, I started the season um, because at that point I was still good enough to play in the team. I still felt as though um, I was adding value to the team. And I started the season, um, I, I was playing well. So I was scoring goals, doing okay. But we had a bit of a situation that came up in a game where things weren't going well. And I wasn't the sort of player on a pitch who led by example. I just did my own thing. I, I played my game um, and hoped that was going to help the team. And I got this feeling that uh, during the game, when things weren't going well, nobody else in the team was prepared to step up and take responsibility. Everybody was looking over thinking, well, come on, you're the manager. You sort it out but I wasn't capable, capable of doing that as a player. So I made a decision to leave myself out of it. Um, and I know that if somebody else was the manager, the way that I was playing, that probably wouldn't have happened, but I felt it was the right thing to do. So I left myself out um, and I hoped that somebody else would, would come up and, and grab it. Now, we had some good senior players. You know, the goalkeeper, Neil Edwards, was a good senior player, even though he was really struggling with a lot of injuries. We had Gareth Griffiths, who was a big senior player as a centre-back, and he was the captain. We had Richard Jobson, a senior player. Uh, uh, Dave Flitcroft in midfield was a, was a senior player. So we had some good leaders in there. But we also had a lot of young players. We had a young Patrick McCourt, whose head was all over the place. Two young strikers, Lee McEverley and um, Kevin Townsend, Matt Doherty, a left back. So we had some really young players who needed some some real guidance. Um, but unfortunately, it, it didn't work out how we would have liked. Uh, we had a we had a fantastic FA Cup run where we we beat Preston and Coventry and um, eventually got knocked out um, away at Wolves, but. The big thing about the cup run was it generated hundreds of thousands of pounds for the club, so it put them in a good position. 
And um, it was a really strange one because before one of the cup games, Sky TV came into the um, into the ground and did all these live interviews and there's lots of stuff going on. And they interviewed the chairman and then they then came and interviewed me and they said to me, oh, um, we've just spoken to David Kilpatrick and he said that you're getting a new contract. And I went, oh, right. It's the first I know about it. I said, we haven't spoke about that. So then the chairman came to me and said, no, no, definitely. We want you to stay. We're going to give you a new two-year contract. So let's sit down and talk about it. Now, because of the cup run, we'd had a big backlog of fixtures and we had games coming thick and fast. And I said, look, chairman, we've got so much on. My contract's really not that important at the moment. You know, let's let's get through these fixtures and then we can sit down and talk about it. But, you know, can I trust you that that'll happen? He went, you've got my word, definitely will happen. So the games came round thick and fast. We we lost against Wolves. And from that point, we had a really bad run of results. The performances weren't good. The, uh, the results weren't good. And... Um, it start, the things started to sort of snowball a little bit, that things weren't really good at the club. So we came to the end of the season and um, the chairman came in to me and said, I think it was the last game of the season, he came into my office and we had a big office and then a little bit on the side, which was my, my own office. So the chairman come into the big room and said, Paul, can you just come through to, to your room? So we went through, shut the door, and he started crying in the room and saying, I've, uh, you know, I've let you down. We should have had this contract done. Um, I'm resigning. Um, the rest of the board are not happy with the way it's going. And I've resigned. I'm walking out. I can't stand it anymore. So I'm like, all right, okay. So what does that mean for me? So he said, well, they're going to speak to you. So they met me on the, the following week. They met me, a couple of directors. And basically, they give me a bit of an ultimatum that, we're happy to give you a new two-year contract, but we're going to choose your staff for you. And uh, I was like, whoa, hang on, I don't really like that. So basically my staff, my coaching staff was me. Jamie Hoyland was my assistant. Colin Greenall was the youth team coach. And we had a part-time goalkeeper coach who used to come in one day a week. So I said, well, what, what exactly do you mean? They said, well, you either sack your youth team coach and Jamie becomes youth team coach and we'll appoint your assistant or you sack Jamie, Colin can stay and we'll appoint your assistant. So basically they were saying that they felt that me and Jamie together were too inexperienced to work the job. So they wanted me to, they wanted to bring an assistant in to work alongside me. And I said, well, no, because that, that's not the problem in my mind. That's not the issue here. Um, we need, we need to improve the squad and with the money we've made in the FA Cup, can I just have a bit of that to do it? And they said, no, um, if you don't agree to us appointing your assistant, then the contract's not there. It's your choice. You've got two years or you walk away. I thought about it overnight, spoke to Jamie and to Colin and explained the situation. They both said, look, Simo, you do whatever you think's right for you. Whatever, we'll accept it. You know, we ain't going to fall out about it. It's football. Um, but I'd made the decision that, I wasn't prepared to be dictated to as to who my staff would be. So I took a bit of a gamble and I just said, no, nah, forget it. Um, just terminate the contract. So I walked away um, and left. And I, I got to say, it was a bit of a relief doing that as well, um, because I realised that the directors who were taking over weren't as honest as I would have liked to have worked for. And, um, for me, it was it really was the right thing to do. And to be fair, the Rochdale fans 
at that point didn't particularly like me anyway so it's probably a blessing in disguise that it happened because I was able to leave um, I left the club in a, a decent financial position and um, everybody moved on and we just got on with our lives. You mentioned the fact that you move, you move on, you get on with it, you go to your hometown club in Carlisle. Mm. Very tough initially, the club gets down to the conference, you then bounce back through the playoffs and then you have arguably the best season of your managerial career. You mark a double promotion by winning League Two, manager of the season there. And if you look back, this is something I find fascinating. Your statistics were the best on points per game basis in the whole of the country ahead of Rafa Benitez at that time. Yeah, it was um, it was a really strange time. You know, like you say, it's my hometown, my home city, Carlisle. So I was really close to going there in the early stages of my career. If Bob Stoke would have been impressed with me in that first half, but I, I thought my time of going back to Carlisle was probably gone. Um, I'd left Rochdale and I was out of contract. I had nowhere to go, thinking, wow, what am I going to do now? And I got a call off Roddy Collins to go solely as a player. And I really fancied the idea of finishing my career as Carlisle with nothing to think about but just me playing. And Roddy had given me assurances he'd look after me. I wouldn't have to move. I could stay in the house where we were settled and the boys were all doing okay at school. So... I went up there, but I realised very quickly that the the club was in absolute turmoil. There was loads of problems in there. The squad was a really strange mix of, of players. Um, Roddy had his own management style and, and he just, we had a training session where he absolutely ran us into the ground and was verbally abusing me and other players and I got in the car and, and rung Jackie and, and I was driving back home to Blackburn. I said, right, open a bottle of wine. We need to have a chat. I said, I'm not doing this. I'm packing in. I've had enough. And we got home, had a couple of glasses of wine and she persuaded me just to see if it changed, see if results picked up. Um, and then Roddy got the sack about a week or two later and I was asked to be caretaker of the team whilst the decision was made. Um, and then from there, it just took off. And the first part of it we, was really tough. We were working under CVA for that first part where I wasn't allowed to change the squad. And I think that was up until about, I think it was the first week in December. And it's funny, just again, how little things just changed. So we got that lifted. Um, and we had, we had a, some really good players in the group, but we also had some players who'd been brought over. Roddy had brought them in from the League of Ireland and, um, you know, I know what a good standard the League of Ireland is, but you can't have a, a predominantly League of Ireland-based players playing in the English League too, because it's just tough. It's a tough league to play in. So I knew I needed to change the mix of it. When we got CVA lifted, I was able to bring in Kevin Gray from Tranmere on a free transfer, Tom Cowan. Um, I think it was Dundee got put into administration and Tom was was basically out of work. I brought Tom in. Andy Priest got the sack at Berry, and, and I always remember when I got the sack, a manager ringing me and saying, you know, keep your chin up, look after yourself, you know, you'll you'll get back in soon. And I rung Priestley just as a gesture to to follow up somebody doing it to me and said, you know, keep your chin up, I hope you're all right, blah, blah, blah. And if you want to come and train, come and, you know, come in with us. And he went, well, I'll come and sign. Would you, you not need a striker? I went, 
would you come and play? Do you not want to manage a job? He went, no, no, I'm happy to do that. So I brought Priestley in. So I'd got a spine of a team in Andy Priest, Kev Gray, Tom Cowan. Just one sec, sorry. I'll have coffee, please, yeah. Um, I brought these players in. And then we had others in there who, people like Matty Glennon, Peter Murphy, Chris Billy, really good pros who were in a way were probably being stifled a little bit but then they got some other good pros who come in who just changed the whole feeling of the club there was a there was a real drinking culture going in there and and it just changed because we managed to put different people into the changing room um and everything just snowballed from there we went on a run of results from December onwards, which was probably promotion form, but not enough to get us um, out of the relegation places. Second last game of the season, we got relegated. But I knew that everything was in place for us to actually be successful. And then that following summer, the owner, John Courtney, decided to sell it, sell the club to a local businessman, a businessman called Fred Story. And... I've got to say, as much as John was a top, top bloke, um, really good to work for, Fred coming into the club just changed the whole outlook of the place, and he really did. Um, I, I look at the, the relationship that me and Fred have, and people, you know, if you look, if you speak to football supporters, they, they credit me with Carlisle's success, but I actually think Fred's story played a massive part in that as well, and 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 it was the relationship that me and Fred had working wise that that really really changed the way that the club looked after that. This is something I'm always interested to to ask a manager, and I've I've never really had the chance to to ask it to someone with the experience you've got, Paul. See, managing in the conference to then going into the league setup, is there a massive difference between conference and league two? Or is the gap maybe not as big as people think if you're a successful team? Um, no, the, the conference is a really tough league. Um, the, there's challenges in the conference that you have to get used to. The, um, the standard of the stadiums you go to is a, is a bit of a shock. Um, I've got to be honest with you, and that's a shock. The standard of the referees is really poor, um, and, and I totally understand why it happens because they have to. They've got to work the way through the pyramid system of of getting through the conference to get to football league. So they are going to make mistakes. I totally get that, but it's really frustrating. And and when you're at a club like Carlisle, who everybody's cup final was Carlisle, because we used to take. You know, we would go to some away games and take three and a half thousand supporters with us in a, in the conference. You know, we were we were everybody's big day to to get Carlisle there, so we were a big scalp to beat, and um, it was it was a challenge to get over. And you know, we we had a period in that that season where we did go up. We were really struggling. We we were having it tough, um, and um, you know, we had a situation where we got flooded in Carlisle. And in a way, it took the focus off the football club because everybody then rallied around the city to try and make things right, to, to help people who'd flooded. And that, that actual period where the focus was off the football helped us that we were able to get back to some basics and start to pick up some results again. And we got ourselves into the playoff final. So there, there are issues in there around the, the, the opposition that you play. You can't plan for it as well as you can in the league because the squads change so much. Um, and it's, it, it's a really tough, it's a tough league to play in and a tough league to get out of. And thankfully, 
we did it at that first the first chance because if you don't do it at the first chance the level of finance that you get as a parachute payment just drops dramatically and that second season is a really tough one to be able to keep going with a big football club like we were in, in Carlisle. Big football club as you say you get up we talked about the double promotion Preston North End come calling was that just an opportunity that was that was too good to turn down considering it was the championship historic club as well? Yeah it was yeah I mean it's um, you know I, I was in a position where you know We'd done really, really well at Carlisle. It was my home city. Um, and I always remember a conversation I'd had with Dave Penny, who'd been at Doncaster, and Dave had done a similar thing in that they'd gone in the conference, they won the conference, got up to League Two, won League Two, and he was flying at Doncaster. Um, he turned down opportunities to go to bigger jobs, or the club turned it down whichever way. And he ended up getting the sack um, at Donny. And, and I remember him saying to me, You've got to be really careful and you've got to choose the right club to go to. Your next one's the big time and your timing of it's really important because you could end up it all going belly up and you get the sack and where do you go after that? So I was always conscious of that, but I was coming to the end. I had one season left on my contract and you know I'd been on that same contract for conference season, League Two season. It'd always been the same. And I just thought it needed to be improved and that wasn't, it wasn't happening. So um, Fred felt as though they couldn't afford to pay me anymore. So, you know, that's his decision. I had a I always remember doing a, a, a radio interview with, um, he's actually died now, the radio reporter, Derek Lacey, who used to do Carlisle United for Radio Cumbria. And Derek asked me a question and he said, um, there's a lot of rumours about you leaving to go to championship clubs. What can you tell us? And I said to him, the truth is, I can't tell you anything because I don't know anything. I said, all I'm doing, I'm planning for pre-season. I'd just, I'd just signed Kevin Gall. So I was still planning that I was going to be, or I'd agreed a contract with Kevin Gall. I was still planning I was going to be at Carlisle for the pre-season. And finished the interview, went into town and met my mum for a cup of coffee and I was sitting there and I got a phone call from Fred to say, I've accepted a compensation package from Preston and you've got permission to go and speak to them. And I said, right, what about us talking about a contract here? And he went, go and speak to them. He said, I know you want to work in the championship, you're ambitious, so I respect that, just go and have a chat with them. So I went there. Derek Shaw, the chairman, sort of persuaded me that it was the right thing to do and obviously financially it was a it was a big move for me and uh, I decided to to take the chance and go I looked at Preston as a club um, always seemed very stable not a, not a huge club in terms of financially in the championship but a decent stable club I looked at the goalkeeper and the defensive record from the previous season and thought yeah that's a good base to go and work from um, we had David Nugent who was scoring who was a goal scorer and I felt as though we had a a really good mix. I agreed to take the job and on um, the day that I agreed I then get told that um, we've sold um, Claude Davis to Derby County for X millions. The day of the press conference I get told by an agent that Tyrone Mings isn't going to stay so I'll lose. So straight away I've lost two of that back four who were really successful. Um, but again, it was welcome to the championship. This is what it's all about. You've just got to get your head down and get on with it. 
head down, get on with it, as you say. And in terms of David Nugent, the season that you managed him at Preston, it was, it's, and when you look at his career statistics, it's the second most productive season of his career ever. Mm. It got the attention of other clubs. Just what was he like to manage and, and what was it like working with him and then working with, with Michael Ricketts at the same time? Because you've got yeah. one who's coming through very young, hot shot scoring goals, and you've got another one who was the England international coming in at the latter stages of his career. Yeah, they're two total different characters. Um, Nuge was a, he was a big kid. He was a, a lovely, lovely lad who just loved playing games, loved training, didn't want to, didn't particularly want to work on his technical side of his game. He just loved playing and he loved being out on the pitch. Um, and we had good players around him. You know, he, at, at, at the start, he was working off Danny Dicchio, who was in there. We had wide players who were providing people like Chris Sedgwick, Danny Pugh, um, Simon Whaley. We had a midfield with people like Paul McKenna, who was an outstanding footballer, um, really good pros like Callum Davidson, Graham Alexander, real, real good pro footballers who, who sort of kept everybody in check, really, and, and kept the club going. Um, but Nuge was in that position where the club knew he was worth a lot of money. Um, he refused to sign a new contract, him and his agent. A number of times we had conversations and the figures that he was asking for, a club like Preston just couldn't go to. So we knew it was inevitable he was going to go. Um, but that first season where we were doing really well, we, we got to the top of the championship and um, it was the first time in, I think it was 55 years that the club had got to the top of the championship. And in that, um, in coming up to the January window, I asked the chairman if we could have a go for it. You know, we really, we really needed to get a couple of bodies in just to strengthen it, um, to try and get ourselves over the line, to try and get promotion. And we had, we had a couple of shareholders who were really wealthy, um, and I asked the chairman if I could go and sit and have a coffee with them, trying to get them both to chuck a couple of million in each to allow us, I'd done deals to bring three, three loan signings in, uh, well, one permanent and two loan signings till the end of the season. I'd worked all the, you know, I'd worked out all of the um, finances of what it was going to cost if we, if we did it. It was perfectly reasonable. It would come into this money if I could get these two shareholders to agree to it. Um, but the chairman made the decision, no, that's not how we work. Um, and I was saying to them, well, look, if we get promotion, we're going to fill our boots with millions from the Premier League. If we don't, we're going to sell Nuge and we can pay these financial guys, you know, these two investors back. So we'll be, we'll be fine. And he said, no, no, we're okay. We've got what we, we've got all we need to get up. And we lost Danny Dicchio to America. We decided to go and do that. And I kept saying to Derek Shaw that if we lose Nuge, he's our main goal scorer. We've got a problem. And if we lose Paul McKenna, we've also got a problem. So, we went on the night of the transfer window, we played Cardiff City away and Paul McKenna came off with a groin injury and never played again that season. So we lost him. Nuge didn't actually score a goal again. I think I'm right in saying until the last game of the season against Birmingham, he hadn't scored another goal. So he had a dry patch and we needed players to replace these because these were two, although we had Graham Alexander was a top, top player in the side. He was, a, he was one of our best. So we lost that. We also had the disruption of Carlo Nash um, decided he wanted to leave. He needed to get back down south. He he lost faith because he said that 
I turned an offer down from a Southern club, which I'd never even had a phone call from them. So it was, I don't know where he got his information, but it wasn't true. So we lost the best goalkeeper in the championship because his head was gone. Um, Paul McKenna, David Nugent, we were in a really tricky situation. And unfortunately, performances weren't good. I made mistakes as a manager and, um, you know, ultimately we ended up missing out on um, on promotion, um, which was the catalyst for me losing my job. But going back to Nuge and Ricketts, Rico was brought in because we desperately needed a striker because, I, you know, because of Nuge's position, I felt we needed somebody to strengthen that. And it just didn't work with Michael Ricketts. He came in. I remember a game against Man City in the FA Cup where he missed a really, really good chance to put us 1-0 up against City. And this was at a time when City were just starting to take off. Um, they were a really good side. And I, I, it, just, it just didn't really happen for Michael. He, didn't, he, didn't, um, he couldn't get himself really fit. Um, it didn't really fit in with the rest of the dressing room, I think it's fair to say. And unfortunately, he couldn't score goals for us. And it was just one of them things that didn't work out. But it was a case of, in that window, apart, well, I wanted to try and get a few million to bring players in. We ended up, cheers, we ended up bringing three freebies in, in Michael Ricketts, a big centre-half from... Um, I can't remember which African country it was, Seifo Soli, and a right back from the Czech Republic called Pavel Pergel. And they all had to be freeze because we had no money. And unfortunately, if you're wanting to get promotion, you very rarely do it with free transfers. And, and you know, as much as I made mistakes, I think that was a mistake the club made as well. Absolutely. As you say, especially when you're in that sort of playoff hunt, <clears throat> pardon me, you're top of the league towards Christmas. You need, as, as Graham Souness has said so many times, buy when you're strong. Because yeah. if you buy when you're strong, then you've got more of a chance going forward. Because if you don't, as you've said, the danger is you can stagnate. The problem with Preston is they didn't back you with that money. The summer comes, David Nugent leaves. He's mm. on to join Portsmouth at the time, um, yeah. which is a big loss. You're not going to get the same level of money to reinvest back in the squad that you get for Nugent. And then ultimately, as you say, you end up leaving the club. From Preston onto Shrewsbury, they were a League Two club at the time. Why did why was that an attraction to you? Because mm. from where you were in the championship, was it just a case of being desperate to get back in? Yeah, I... I got attracted by what I was told the project was going to be at Shrewsbury, to be honest with you. Um, I was advised by a lot of people not to take it, just to wait and to, to wait for the right opportunity because you'd get a bigger club than Shrewsbury. Um, but I was attracted to the project there. Um, it looked a really interesting one. They had a lovely new stadium. Um, the, the chairman... You know, he he came across well in an interview. You know, I'll be honest with you, he wasn't he wasn't my type of bloke, but he was he, he came across well in the interview. And we had a chief exec, Rob Bickerton, who they, they really sold the place to me and what they were going to do and where they wanted to go with it. Um, we were struggling at the time as a team, but I looked at it and I looked at the squad and their aim was just to to make sure we stayed up. And I, and I thought that would have been, you know, I, I really fancied my chances to do that. And we we did stay up. We, we, we managed to do it quite comfortably in the end. And then in the following summer, 
um, the chairman sort of he, he had a right good go at it. He, he backed me, and, and basically we, we tried to get a few players in, um, and we were struggling to to be able to match it. We wanted to bring um, Graham Coughlin in from Rotherham. They were having, I think they were in. A, maybe not administration, but they'd had a load of points docked and big fine and they were struggling and I was told that Graham Coughlin was available. So we were trying to bring him in. I'd, I'd spoken with Nottingham Forest about bringing Grant Holt in, but the figures that were talking were ridiculous. I couldn't, come, I couldn't get anywhere near. So the chairman came to me and said, right, I'm going on holiday. If you could bring a striker in, who would it be? Um, before, if you could try and get somebody for when I come back, who would it be? And I said, well, I'd like to get Grant Holt, but these are the figures. I can't. I just can't afford it. He went right. If you can go and get it for these figures, I'll let you do it. And I went. Well, we're already over. You know, we're already up to the limits and budget. He said, No, we'll do it separately. Don't you worry about it. We're fine. I can do that. So anyway, I managed to haggle a deal with Forrest to get Holty out. Got him in on a really good deal. Chairman come back was delighted. He then decided he wanted to sign Graham Coughlin, so he went out and pushed the bar again. And I, you know, I wasn't involved in the negotiations. It was he did the finances on that one. Um, so I knew that we'd gone over budget, but I felt we had a really good squad of players there to be able to do it. Um, so we had a good season, but unfortunately missed out on the on the losing in the last minute of the game at, at Wembley was a real heartbreaker. But again, I felt as though we had a good squad of players. But again, the usual thing happened. Holty did so well that the club sold him to Norwich. Um, I didn't replace him very well. Um, my signings weren't great that I made that summer. But again, you're trying to replace a lad who scored 30-odd goals in the team with free transfers and players who are not at that level. We also lost Ben Davis to Notts County that summer as well. He, he'd scored... 20 odd goals. I think we lost 50 goals between Ben and Holty. Um, and the signings who came in to replace them, you know, it's a tough act to follow. And, and basically they didn't do it. Um, but again, I knew at the club I was I was a bit of a dead man walking really at the club. We'd lost the playoff final. Um, and I I knew that a conversation had gone on with the chair between the chairman and some and another manager to come in and replace me. So I knew that the first opportunity that Roland Witchley got, I'd be out the door. I had a I had a voicemail recording on my office phone of him discussing appointing a new manager. Um, so I knew that my days were numbered, but we were doing okay over the season. We had a really good run up until. We had a bad run at the turn of the year where the fans turned on me and they weren't happy with what I was doing. And two games to go, we were six points off the playoffs, but the goal difference was so big that we had no chance of, uh, of achieving it. And then I got the sack the following week. So, you know, it was that had been coming to me since about the September, I think, to be honest with you. So it was, it was just one of them where I just had to hang on in there as long as I could um, and just survive it, really. After um, Shrewsbury, you had spells with Stockport, Northwich, Victoria, before you then went down the coaching route. You were obviously coaching with Steve McLaren at Derby County and then at Newcastle. What was it like working with Steve McLaren? Because regarded by many, Sir Alex Ferguson had him as assistant, as we all know. He managed England. Regarded as one of the best coaches in terms of putting sessions on and delivering coaching to, to players at elite level. 
that there's been in the game for maybe the last 20 years? Yeah, um, after the Stockport one, I decided that, um, well, after the Shrewsbury, the way, the way it entered at Shrewsbury and the way, the way the Stockport one went, I realised that I, I couldn't work for people like that. So I needed to get out of the management side of it to try and give myself a chance. So I left there, I went to Portugal, worked in an academy, I had about 18 months out there, which was a nice, pleasant change. And then I got asked to go and work with Steve. And I've known Steve since being a player at Oxford together. He was the assistant at Derby. And we've all, we'd always sort of, I wouldn't say we were best of friends, but we kept in touch all the time. And he called me one Sunday night and said, look, I'm going into Derby County tomorrow for talks. Uh, I think I've got the job. I'm like, yeah, okay, well, why are you telling me this? And he went, well, I want you to come in with me. Well, that was such a massive lift for me. I'd been out of work for, well, I don't even, a full-time job for about 14 months. I think I'd been out of work. I was doing some part-time stuff. So that was huge to go, knowing I was going into a club like Derby, which I had great memories of anyway, and to work with Steve and, and he was bringing Eric Steele in as well was, was huge. And um, I've got to say at, at Derby, he was, his analytical eye and his tactical eye and stuff like that is as good as anybody and still as a coach he is he is a top coach but he, he just unfortunately that that first season when we didn't get promotion we went in there with a plan the first season was the first part of the, the job was to try and create the culture the next season was to try and get a group of players that could push for a playoff place and then the third season was going to be the one where he really felt as though we could come into our own. Now, in that first season, we ended up getting to the playoffs. So everybody's expectations changed then and went through the roof and, and everybody straight away. Instead of this being a, a chance to get a group together for the next season, we were under pressure to get to the playoffs or at least get promotion or, or you know, get promotion straight away. So the expectation changed at the club. Um, and it was a really tough, we had a really good start to the season, but then at the turn of the year, sort of maybe November, December time, there started to come these rumours that Newcastle wanted Steve to go and take over there. And it, as much as me and Steve spoke about it at the start, we never spoke again because he told me, I'm not going, we've got a job to finish here. Um, and that was always, you know, that was always the feeling we had a job, but the, the, rumours didn't go away and I think I don't know whether it was Steve to blame or the club to blame or whoever those rumours were never squashed properly we didn't really put that to bed and it was hanging over us all the time so players were starting to wonder whether it was going to happen and what was going on and we picked up injuries and I think the two things together the injuries that we had the um, the rumours about him going ended up being a real major issue and it affected the club over those last few months of the season and ultimately um oh have you gone uh, ultimately cost us um the place in the in the uh, in the playoffs and and ultimately cost steve his job and and further down the line my, my job as well in terms of steve the football he played at derby it was exciting there was a playoff final there was the, the heartbreak there he gets the chance to, to go to Newcastle after losing his job. <clears throat> there was lots of speculation at the time, as you know, and you've referenced there. Going into the Premier League, going into Newcastle, 
what was that like for you and what was it like working with Steve and also Ian Cathro? Yeah, it was, um, I mean, it's a huge football club, Newcastle United. Um, but I, I've, the, the only way I can describe it is that it was a group of players that weren't together. Um, a lot of them, the biggest, bigger hitters, didn't want to be there. Um, it was just a really strange mix of a group of players. And um, I don't think Steve was ever really allowed to run the football side of it as he wanted to. There was a lot of decisions that were taken out of his hands um, around the recruitment, about the way he wanted to do it. I mean, just for example, the first, his press conference, Steve wanted all of the media to be allowed to come into it because there was a, a block on who was allowed to be in at Newcastle. They had one newspaper and I think it was the, uh, at, well, Sky Sports, obviously, because of the deal, but... Steve said, no, no, let's start afresh here. You know, I, there's been a lot of bad publicity going around. Let's start afresh. Let's welcome all the media in and let's, let's give them what they want. And he, they weren't, he wasn't allowed to do that. So straight away, he was on the back foot. Um, he wasn't allowed to bring the staff in that he wanted to do, the changes he wanted to, be, wanted to make. So we were on, we, we were on a, a bit of a hide into nothing start straight away. Um, but then again, ultimately, you're judged on results and our results weren't good enough. Um, and it's always easy to, you, you can lay the blame just at a manager's door. But there's a lot of things that went into why results weren't very good. Um, and ultimately, you pay the price and we lost our job. And it took it, you know, the, the club was in real desperate trouble when we all got the sack. They were struggling. And it took us to go that low for the club to actually open up a little bit and let a proper football person make the proper football decisions. And Rafa was allowed to do that. You know, he came in straight away, made decisions on how it should be done and was allowed to do it. When I honestly do believe that I'm not saying we would have been as good as Rafa Benitez, but I think that Steve could have made a difference if he was allowed to make football decisions like he wanted to do. Absolutely. As you say, if you're the manager or part of the coaching staff at a football club, you need to be able to make the decisions because if you don't, you've got one hand or both hands tied behind your back and yeah. your, your coaching ability will be able to, 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 to handle that and get on with it for a period of time. But long term, that's no way to, to operate. And, and you, you know that yourself, having been in football, it's, it's a tough old gig when that's the case. Now, the question I've got for you is, you've managed, obviously, successfully in your career. We've talked about your time at Shrewsbury, we've talked about your time at Preston, we've talked about Carlisle, we've talked about England under-20s. Has the success with the England under-20s given you the desire to potentially return to management in the future? Yeah, it has. Um, I mean, as I said, after Stockport, I decided I needed to get out of management. Um, you know, I... Probably one of my downfalls is I'm actually too honest. I, 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 I say things as they are, and, and unfortunately, I I, um, I should have learned, particularly at Preston, that I should have actually told some lies at times in the media. I shouldn't have been honest because I, I ended up I ended up giving everybody a stick to beat me with for being honest. Um, so I, I came out of it because I needed to go and sort of re-educate myself and, and be a little bit better on, on some things. 
but it's I, I still look and and I still I still do want to have that madness of the technical area on a match day. Um, I still miss that. I miss the day-to-day involvement. But I'm really fortunate that I'm in a brilliant job. I've got a fantastic job here with the FA. Um, but no job lasts forever. So there's going to come a point where I will be surplus to requirements at the FA. I'll, they'll probably want to move me on or whatever. Um, and it's a case of seeing what comes, what job comes. What I, what I don't want to do is go into a situation where you're fighting a losing battle, which I look at a lot of clubs and, and, and that's a real tough one to have to take. If you're going into a club where you've got absolutely no chance of any success, I don't want that. I need to be able to find a place where you've got a group of, a group of owners, directors who have a bit of a long-term plan, not just looking for a short-term fix. You know, my... My remit at Stockport was to just finish third bottom and to build a club for the next five years. And I realised after about six weeks that that was a complete and utter lie. Um, and, you know, from going from... When I had my interview at Stockport, they asked me what, what my aim for the season was. Where did I think we should... No, I, they were asking me what I thought I should... What I could bring to the club. And I said to them, what do you want this season? And the three directors in the room, the chairman and two directors, I asked them to write it down on a piece of paper so I had it with me. And two of them said, I want to finish third bottom. The third one said he wanted to finish 13th. And he couldn't tell me why he picked 13, but he just said, I want, that's where I want to do. Because it's like, I'm like, well, you don't get in the playoffs and you're way above it. Why 13th? He went, I don't know. I just want that number. So anyway, that that so I wrote it down. And in my second board meeting, they asked me, what am I going to do to get promotion, to get, get the team into the top half of the table and push for playoffs? So I, I realised that it, it was all changing. I don't want to go into a place that, that, that I'm sort of led astray and led down a, a, a wrong path that, that I think is, that we're capable of. So if I can find a club that have a long-term vision, when the day comes, I think that's, that's something that I'd like. But just to be... I mean, I started in professional football in 1982. So in 20, you know, 2020, I'm still involved in the game. I realise I am a really, really in a fortunate position. I'm delighted to still be involved. I've got brilliant memories from things that I've done playing and, and coaching, managing, whatever it is. But I still want another shot. I still want to have another go at it, whether that be in five years, 10 years, I've no idea. Um, but even if I didn't, I'd still look back and think I have been so lucky to be involved in this game as long as I have. Absolutely. It's been a pleasure speaking to you. I'd like to finish with a quick round of quick fire questions because we've talked about Paul Simpson, the manager. I want to try and find out a bit more about Paul Simpson, the person. The first <laughs> one being, what's your favourite sport outside of football? Um, favourite sport I love watching England play rugby um, and I if it's to do with England I'm really patriotic so I love England cricket one day test match T20 and I love England rugby union so I would probably say those two um, favourite band um, I don't have a current favourite band if I'm going to be honest with you um, I would probably say it's any sort of Motown music. Um, so Diana Ross is probably the one. Um, but my youngest son is in musical theatre, so it's more, he's in a, a show called Book of Mormon. So I know all the words to the Book of Mormon songs. 
Uh, Favourite film? Um, you know what? I'm rubbish with films. Um, I don't have a favourite film. That is really sad, but I don't have a favourite film. I, I'll watch anything. Um, in the days where the boys were younger, I'd probably come out and say a Disney one, but it's I don't have a favourite. In terms of yourself with football, you mentioned the fact you worked in Portugal with football. You've also travelled a lot as well. What, where in the world has been your favourite place to visit with, with football? With football, well, I've got to say South Korea um, because the World Cup finals, the way that they welcomed us um, was just absolutely fantastic. The organisation, the meticulous planning that they do, um, everything about that and, and obviously the fact that you come away with the trophy at the end makes it. But but South Korea was was a fantastic place. And I also went over um, and, and I watched a game in Japan when I did a recce over there to look at a training camp. And um, the atmosphere inside um, inside a stadium in, in Japanese football is fantastic. But So South Korea really, but I would love to go and experience Japan again as well. In terms of you and your family life, in terms of travelling, where is somewhere you and your wife would love to travel that you've not been to yet? Um, we're pretty rubbish with travelling because we've been really um, sort of stuck in our ways all many years because we were allowed, with Jackie being a teacher and me playing, we were only ever allowed one week a year on a holiday. So we used to go over to Val de Lobo in Portugal. So we love Val de Lobo because of our memories there with children. We now go over to the south of France, a place called Port Grimaud. We go somewhere over there and um, my sister-in-law has this static caravan that we love going. It is not luxury, but we just love that, that holiday environment. Um, I think if um, we'd like to go to Australia, but, we, but at this current moment, the way that we are in this lockdown, everything that we want to do, our money on holidays will be put back into the UK. We just want to try and help as much as we can to get the UK um, leisure industry back on track. So for the foreseeable future, I don't see myself going anywhere but the UK. And there's some lovely places in the UK that we want to visit that we haven't done so far. Well, that's a very, that's a very good point. And in terms to get it back to football for the last few questions, who would you say best players you've played with and best players you've managed? Best player I've played with was Gaza. Um, I played in the under 21s with Gaza, um, and he was so. As a, I roomed with him for 15 days in the Toulon tournament, and I was demented by the end of it looking after him. But as a player, he had so much ability, and I was. I remember one performance when he was on the opposition to me. We played against Ox uh, from for Oxford at Tottenham in an FA Cup game. And Gaza was absolutely outstanding on the day. And it's the best individual performance I've ever come up against. Um, so Gaza, as um, the best player that I've um, played with, the best player I've managed, um, in terms of what he did for us, I would probably say Grant Holt um, was absolutely outstanding because of the return that he gave us. Nuge, David Nugent was a real character to manage um, but then in terms of being a top pro even though he sort of let me down in the way he left the club I would have to say Graham Alexander um, he was a top pro the way he went about his business and 
uh, I was disappointed with the way it sort of ended at, at Preston and it and it was a, a, a real kick in the teeth. But as a as a top player and a top pro, he was he was up there with them really. Who was the best manager of your career when you were a player? Um, I've got to say, and it's the combination of Jim Smith and Steve McLaren. They they were brilliant, um, really good together. For me personally, was Brian Horton, the way that he handled me and the way he helped me with my career. But as a pairing, Steve and Jim were were just top level, really were. And the last question I've got for you, you've managed in football for many years. You've been involved in the game, as you say, since 82 to 2020, which is absolutely very admirable. What advice would you give to any young manager or coach listening to this now? Um, be prepared for a hell of a roller coaster. Um, just never think you know everything. You know, make sure you ask for advice off senior people um, and probably try and do it your way. Don't try and be somebody else. Do it your way. Ask advice, but do it your way. But just hold on tight because it is one hell of a roller coaster. Be prepared for disappointments. Um, enjoy the good times because that's something you don't do as a manager. Uh, make sure you enjoy them, but get ready for the next one. Absolutely, Paul. It's been an absolute pleasure. Thank you so much for your time. I really appreciate it. Pleasure. No problem at all. Good to speak to you.